Welcome to Making Sense of It All, helping you gain insight and take control of your wealth creation journey. Hello listeners and welcome back to Making Sense of It All and with our segment on In the Black with Louis Dooley. Louis, welcome back mate and who have we got today? Yeah, today's episode's a really good episode. We were lucky enough to have Andrew Parsons um, who is the Chief Investment Officer and one of the founding members of Resolution Capital. Resolution Capital is a specialist global listed real asset securities manager with a relatively strong track record over a very long period of time managing listed global real estate. So we're really excited for this episode and we hope our listeners enjoy it. Excellent. Without further ado, let's jump in. Andrew, thanks for coming on, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks. Pr- yeah, brilliant. Well, I think um, I think a good way to start uh, our discussion off today would be for you to give a little bit of a bit of a background to Resolution Capital and um, give a little bit of context as I guess the perspective in which um, you look through the investment lens. Sure. So Resolution Capital, indeed, the sort of origins actually were part of Lend Lease back in the nineteen nineties, um, and you know we were very fortunate um, being part of a, a much bigger platform where we were able to see some of the world's best investment managers uh, at work. And as a, from that, we um, you know, had great grounding and understanding uh, you know, best investment practices, et cetera. Uh, and then in 2003, 2004, we left Lendlease and um, set up Resolution Capital. It's uh, an Australian-based, Australian-owned investment manager. We're focused on listed real estate. Um, we've been managing money in listed real estate since effectively as a team since 1995. We started our global strategy in 2006. We started our global fund uh, for a broader range of investors in 2008. Uh, and in 2022, in fact, uh, 2 to 22, uh, we started uh, RCAP, uh, which is the listed uh, ETF. Uh, trading on the uh, the ASX, and so we've been basically, as I say, dedicated to um, investing in what we consider to be real estate that happens to be listed on the stock market, uh, and we're able to invest in basically some of the world's best real estate real estate platforms, uh, but in a liquid form. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, it's a really interesting, uh, I guess, lens in which you guys look through the real estate. Um, investment universe and it's, it's not just a you know a company on a sheet of paper but you're actually buying a physical asset um, that just happens to be liquid in nature and the way in which it's um, actually traded correct um, so I guess I'd be interested to hear I guess what your what your views are on in the current economic environment and how that flows through to your current global um, property pos- positioning sure so it's fair to say that um, you know if we look at the global economy as far as we're concerned it's the old normal and what I mean by that is that we've um, reverted to conditions pre, prior to QE. Uh, and so what we're seeing is monetary policy conditions um, that are, um, shall we say, more, more, more disciplined, if you will. Um, the days of the easy money are being unwound. Uh, and we're now experiencing you know, uh, interest rates we think that, that should be about right if inflation does in fact moderate. So we're not um, in the camp that says that interest rates are going back to you know, levels of, I don't know, three, four years ago. We think they're actually about where they should be. 
uh, and hence we're very much and have been for some time in the, 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 the higher for longer camp. Uh, because obviously, you know, reserve banks, central banks need to have something up their sleeve that if there is the next un uh, um, unforeseen event uh, that, that harms the economy, they've got the ability to provide uh, some stimulus via lower interest rates um, that were, as I say, artificially too low for too long. Now, whether or not we're facing a, a soft uh, landing recession or a hard landing recession, or etc., that's not going to be our area of expertise because, you know, uh, we've just been seeing too many experts calling recessions continuously over the last 20 years to know that it's a, a mugs game to, to try and predict the shape of the economy. So what we try to focus on is, yes, interest rates for, 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 for visible reasons, why we think they're going to stay at these sorts of levels, um, and then how we're positioned uh, to deal with that situation, and then also running scenarios if we're wrong, how we're positioned to get through uh, more challenging conditions. Um, so we, we think through different scenarios because what we realise with real estate is that if we needed to be reminded, it is a cyclical asset class. Uh, and so um, what we try to do is look through the cycle and look for vehicles that are actually able to frankly, um, not only endure or, or, or survive the cycle, but actually take advantage of the cycle and not be the victim of the cycle. Yeah, great. Yeah, well, I guess it's an interesting perspective um, with that higher for longer, I guess, rate environment, which we, we tend to actually agree with. I'd be interested to hear your perspective on What's your positioning in terms of balance sheet gearing, particularly in the in the REIT space? Mm -hmm. um, if we are in that higher for longer interest rate environment, mm -hmm. then it's certainly a far more area of focus for us investors yep. um, to be keeping an eye on. So what's what's your perspective in terms of gearing across your, your, your universe? Look, so the great thing is that the, the listed REITs, whether by design or good management or just sheer luck, have actually been deleveraging in the last 10 years. And part of that's been because they've been effectively priced out of the market by competitors uh, with, with a lower cost of capital. And I'm talking most predominantly, you know, industry super funds and private equity real estate players that have basically shut the, the listed market out of any doing anything silly, quite frankly. So the REITs have actually, if anything, been deleveraging in the last 10 years, which is quite extraordinary con considering the conditions where it's been so easy to borrow at such low interest rates. And in fact, bizarrely, if, you know, we almost cannot believe we had that period of negative interest rates So, in many markets around the world. So the fact that the REITs have, in fact, deleveraged in the last decade is, is a credit to them. And I don't think it's been fully appreciated. So if we look at the REITs today globally, um, we're talking about a loan to value uh, of less than 30% on average. Now, there, there are some exceptions, but, but on average, we're talking about less than 30%, uh, which equates to, uh, we look at it as debt to EBITDA, which um, is, uh, we think, a, a more, what's the word, more, more accurate way of really uh, calculating leverage because a loan to value relies on a valuation which can be appraisal-based. It's open to interpretation. Um, debt to EBITDA is, I think, a little more um, uh, concrete, if you will, and uh, we're talking about six times. Now, historically, uh, debt to EBITDA of six times. Historically, vehicles with more than 10 times, you've got to be a bit concerned about. That, that equates, in simple terms, to a loan-to-value of more than 45%, 40 to 45%, and today we're at six times, which is loan-to-value of less than 30%. So the REITs are actually in great shape, uh, and in fact, they can 
look forward to taking advantage of opportunities because most of them, unlike private players, have investment grade debt, which means they're able to access uh, corporate uh, capital debt markets, etc. Now, that's globally. Um, and the other thing that they've done, just to be clear, is they've also taken out longer term debt. So the, 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 the debt that they have is typically seven years on average. If we bring it back to Australia as to contrast with the A-REITs, the big problem with the A-REITs is that we just don't have such access to such a deep um, uh, debt market. So as a consequence, the A-REITs typically borrow for you know, three to four years. So that means that they've got 25 to 30% uh, of their debt maturing each year that they've got to refinance. Now, they don't have high leverage, but you do have to refinance, on top of which the big Achilles heel for the Australian REITs has been that they've got about 40% of their debt is floating interest rate, right? So you've got the double whammy of, of, of shorter term debt where you've got to refinance and you've got a lot of floating rate debt, which means that you're really facing the brunt of this dramatic increase in interest rates. So whereas the overseas REITs, typically seven year debt, typically 90% fixed rate, so that's the interesting thing that's going to unfold in the next you know, 12 uh, to call it 36 months uh, or maybe a little bit longer overseas. We are going to start to see higher interest rates, headwinds for international REITs, but it's not particularly material because they've got lower leverage uh, and as I say, they've got longer term debt. So it's going to be a bit of a drip feed rather than this, what the Australian REITs are facing, which is very much a torrent <laughs> effect of, of the higher interest rates in the short term. Yeah, interesting. So I, I, I've, I'd be interested to hear your perspective because in Australia, the monetary policy environment is, is really starts to implicate the consumer. When, when we start to see rising interest rates and as you refer to that, that variable rate home loan, if we think about the residential market, mm-hmm. really implicates the individual's personal cash flow. But mm-hmm. over in the US now, a lot of the time the consumers, when they're buying a residential loan, will buy a 30-year fixed loan. So... Right. What's your perspective, I guess, from a bit more of a broader lens mm-hmm. in terms of how that tighter monetary policy actually flows through to the economic demand and, I guess, um, you know, yes, yeah, um, overall activity in that economy? Yeah. Look, you're right. There's no doubt that the Australian economy, um, and, and some people say it's a positive because it means monetary policy is more effective more quickly. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's worth noting. But the reality is that... Um, uh, even in Australia, you've got a lot of people without a mortgage. And funnily enough, they're actually benefiting from higher interest rates because they've got cash in the bank and yep. it's now starting to generate uh, a decent return. But clearly, people in the mortgage belt, um, they are going to be hit, right? No question about it. Uh, and that is going to translate in some pockets of the economy into some you know, pretty extreme distress uh, if interest rates continue to rise. Now, the other thing don't forget is that looks as though the Labor government is going to honour the tax cuts um, the phase three uh, of the tax cuts, which fall into place next year. Uh, and so that raises the question, does the, the Reserve Bank try and counter that with another increase in interest rates? But again, you'd almost argue that those people who've got those um, yep. benefits, a proportion of which are going to benefit so from higher interest rates. So the Reserve Bank of Australia is really facing a pretty delicate uh, dynamic where, frankly, a lot of the inflationary, uh, inflationary pressures are not caused by overconsumption in many areas. It's because of the bottlenecks. It's because of the tighter labour market. But you're right in terms of um, if, if it's all about killing the labour market, well, I think that's a, a pretty blunt instrument, isn't it? But that's the deal that we, we currently uh, face. 
or as you said, in the US, retail sales figures just out uh, recently, in fact, overnight, highlighted yet again, continued strength of uh, the US um, uh, consumer. And to some degree, and it's also relevant in Australia, let's not forget, is housing prices have held up. And the wealth effect uh, of, of the house and giving consumers confidence is a pretty important and powerful uh, uh, driver. And so if we saw higher interest rates and weaker housing markets and weaker um, labour markets, definitely Australia is, is facing more challenging conditions, 100%. And look, this is why we've got international diversification with the portfolio. I mean, Australian REITs represent about uh, four, four and a half percent of the portfolio, and we like what we've got here. But this is the benefit of having global diversification, that you're not relying on one market coming through or beating the odds. Yeah. <laughs> You've got true diversification. So, yes, we are all concerned about um, the transmission effect, as you say, uh, but we're not yet seeing it in a dramatic fashion. But there's no doubt that um, it is going to be uh, an issue. Now, the other thing is, just to, 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 to highlight, is real estate should be a bit of a bridge over those conditions. So ironically, in those conditions, do you want to own the retailer or do you want to own the landlord with a five, seven-year lease? Yep. So this is where real estate, you know, it's not a simple answer. Real estate gets to be potentially, and, and again, I'm just talking through scenarios that people think about the un unintended or unexpected consequences. REITs can be seen as a safe haven during that environment. So it is a complicated question. It is a complicated or more complicated answer. Um, and as far as we're concerned, though, without any question that the, the, the Australian economy is more vulnerable, but it's also in some ways, um, it shows that the transmission effect will result in, in a more stable economy in terms of um, uh, achieving what the, the Reserve Bank wants. From a, I guess, a valuation front, uh, how are you viewing now? Granted, there's markets within markets and every, I mean, offices, office space is a great example. It's probably been under, particularly domestically, probably been under the most valuation pressure um, and across the board is largely trading at the largest discount to NTA or NAV or whatever we're, we're looking at. But um, what's, your, what's your take on, on current valuations, I guess, broadly and then any pockets of the market that you think pose compelling value um, currently? Yeah. So, look, I think you've got to be careful about, and I've been around long enough to know, i heard a number of equities managers talk about intrinsic value, and I'm never quite sure what they mean by intrinsic value. So I don't want to use this term lightly, but the great thing is that real estate, and listed real estate in particular, uh, is starting to look like intrinsic value. Now, what we mean by that is intrinsic value is the, the value of the bricks and mortar, okay? When you're buying real estate, you're buying effectively two components, the bricks and mortar, the building, and you're buying the land. The bricks and mortar component doesn't really change much in terms of, um, uh, in terms of going backwards. It very rarely falls dramatically, but anybody who's built a house knows that construction costs typically only ever go up. They might moderate for a while, but they don't typically fall very much. Now, what's happening is that construction costs are going up around the world, and they've gone up sharply in the last couple of years, so the cost of production has gone up. Now, one or two things has to happen. Land values have to fall, or building values, uh, property values in general, have to rise. And what we're seeing is that we're seeing a shortage now of space emerging in some markets because we haven't seen an oversupply. So what we've got the combination is we've got no oversupply, limited um, new construction starting and it is going to get tougher and what we're paying for is basically the bricks and mortar and not much 
because the REIT prices, for example, have fallen 20, 30% from their peaks. So you've now got a situation or a dynamic where you're not paying much for the intangible, if you will, or the land for the unknown, which is the land value. It's a very small component of the overall proportion. You're basically getting hard asset backed um, uh, investments. Uh, and that to us gives us a, a flaw for valuations. Now, again, if you've got a period of, uh, or, or a market where you're seeing high vacancy rates, all bets are off. It means that landlords don't have pricing power. And so as a consequence, you have a situation where rents are not going to grow. Now, the great thing is that with uh, vacancy rates now in general at about 5% and not a lot of supply taking place, uh, we have a dynamic where uh, if there is a soft landing and, and, and tenant demand continues, we're going to face a shortage of supply. And therefore, rents are going to grow. And that's where the inflation story starts and why real estate seen as an inflation hedge starts to kick in. But again, let me be clear. If vacancy rates are high, then landlords don't have pricing power, which means they can't push through rent increases in line with inflation and the, and the story falls apart. But what we have is vacancy rates today are moderate to low and the supply picture is very benign. So we think that the current valuations reflect us a, a, a recession um, and what's underpinning or putting a floor under the prices is the fact that you're only basically paying for the bricks and mortar so we, we think you can be constructive there's no doubt it's been a rough two or three years for, for re, re, uh, REITs and real estate we've seen obviously COVID and the work from home uh, issue we've seen um, uh, we've seen higher interest rates because of Eastern Europe uh, challenges and inflation and bottlenecks and, and things of that nature. So it's been a pretty torrid uh, period for the REITs. Uh, but ironically, if you sort of like drill into the story, you'll find that it's actually starting to make sense. And, you know, uh, sentiment wise, this is now turning uh, turning into a good period to, to look seriously at the space. Yeah. The undersupply component is, is a really interesting, I guess, component of the overall complex at the moment and is oh arguably providing a, a bit of support to valuations because ultimately there's, there's not much development coming online. Yep. What is your outlook for the development pipeline? Obviously, the cost of construction's increased, the cost of yep. finance has increased yep. as well. What's your outlook for pipeline and at what point does that supply chain or supply uh, process normalise? Well, look, as you said, usually when you go into a period of falling um, supply, it's typically associated with um, rising bait or high vacancy rates. We don't have that as a starting point. And already supply is turning down. And it's not going to start back up for a number of reasons. First of all, because as you said, you've got tougher finance conditions, higher finance costs, and the banks are requiring more equity capital. So that makes it life so much harder for developers to kickstart um, projects. And because excuse me, construction costs have gone up and rents have only just started to go up, it doesn't make economic sense uh, for developers to kickstart unless rents really pick up dramatically. So as a consequence, uh, you know, even even if look, even if they just start say they're going to start developing, it takes two years before that new build gets completed and becomes competitive. So we think we're really looking at a period with low moderate supply, as I say, with a starting point of 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 low vacancy. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, it's, it's going to be a really interesting dynamic for, for commercial real estate the next three, four, five years. And um, 
in terms of, as I say, you've got labour issues. I mean, uh, there's no doubt that skilled labour for, for new building is tough. Uh, so there's lots of hurdles um, for, 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 for meaningful new supply uh, to come through for, for quite a period of time. Interesting. I, I'd like to, I'm cognizant of time, so I've, I'd like to hear your perspective on, from an investor's perspective, how they should consider the differences between global and Australian real estate investing. As mm-hmm. you referred to, the, yep. the depth of, I guess, quality Australia A REITs mm-hmm. is, is certainly not the same as it is globally. Mm-hmm. But I'd love to hear, I guess, your thought process in respects to how you assess the different regions and what, if any, differences you utilise when you're approaching that investment. Sure. So, look, we're looking for best of breed real estate platforms. We look, first of all, at sectors rather than regions, because what we're seeing, uh, you know, sort of a global economy, albeit there's obviously a bit of deglobalisation, but, but broadly, globally, we're seeing very similar trends. You know, the office trend is, is broadly similar. You know, demand for logistics is, is broadly similar with, with e-commerce and logistics. Uh, the residential crisis uh, or challenge is not, I can assure you, um, uh, isolated to Australia, there's a there's a there's a real challenge globally in terms of residential, uh, how to, to solve the affordability issue, and, and so what we look for is um, high quality uh, real estate platforms wherever they are in the world, uh, where we're seeing robust tenant demand, where we're seeing limited supply, and where therefore the landlord has pricing power. Now, if we only focused on Australia. You know, basically the broad food groups are, you know, it's Goodman, 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 some office, some retail, and a little bit of this and that, you know, and, and not downplaying them that the, you know, the childcare REITs, uh, the, the self-storage REITs are fine, but they're quite small um, in terms of an opportunity set. And again, you are focused on one economy, uh, maybe a few different cities, but certainly one economy. Um, and without the depth of access to capital, um, whereas where we look globally, we're seeing you know, some of the world's most, shall we say, resilient economies in some respects. Uh, we're seeing um, uh, real estate that, as I say, we can buy for rent residential. We can buy student housing, right? We can buy manufactured home communities, which are, dare I say, trailer parks. Uh, we can buy uh, senior housing. Uh, we can buy uh, single family home REITs. We've got the choice of buying um, uh, healthcare REITs with senior housing, I think I mentioned. We've got uh, logistics, uh, we've got self-storage, we've got data centres. There's no data centre REITs really in Australia of any uh, particular note. Uh, so it's a, a complete opposite uh, spectrum of uh, real estate types that, again, are operating in markets typically or quite often uh, where there are these supply constraints and very strong tenant demand. So it gives us, we think, a more robust um, uh, picture uh, to go through the uncertainties uh, that we face everywhere. Well, this is you're buying high quality real estate with strong balance sheets uh, in multiple jurisdictions, multiple cities, multiple countries um, that, um, you know, as I say, uh, I think are going to demonstrate, uh, on at least on a risk adjusted basis, if not an absolute uh, return basis, very competitive returns. Yeah, great. Well, Andrew. I really appreciate you coming in today. Um, I'm sure our listeners got a, a whole heap of value from that discussion. And, um, yeah, mate, just, again, big thank you and appreciate it. Great. Appreciate the interest. Ta. The information contained in this podcast should not be interpreted as advice. It is general in nature and does not take into account your individual financial situation or needs and should not be relied upon. Before making any investment, insurance, tax, property or financial decision, 
we recommend you consult with a licensed professional advisor to consider your unique circumstances. Guests appearing on this podcast may have a commercial relationship with the companies mentioned.